You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith. And uh, we're going to be talking about the psychology of the Irish today. And uh, Bishop Sheen has an Irish descent to him. And, of course, uh, he he knows uh, so well the psychology of the Irish. So he's going to share a few uh, reflections with us today. And he'll be also talking about the Catechism series. And, of course, we're on lesson number 34 together. And it's going to be on the Sacrament of the Sick. And uh, many of us who are mature in age know all so well the sacrament of the sick. And so it would be nice to have that explained to us. And so let us begin our hour with some prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection from the television series, Life is Worth Living, uh, where the Venerable Sheen will talk about the psychology of the Irish. Please enjoy. Friends, we received so many complaints after giving the psychology of the Russian people and saying nothing about the Irish, (laughs) that we decided tonight to say something about the Irish. Incidentally, there's no red light on the camera. Is it because of St. Patrick's Day and you're afraid to show red? I do not know where the camera is. (laughs) There ought to be a red light on one of these. There it is. Since we gave the psychology of the Russians, we will give tonight the psychology of the Irish and reduce their psychological patterns to three traits. First, this one, of course, will surprise you. (laughs) And Blarney. (laughs) Now, first of all, the fighting. It is sometimes said that people fight because they hate Really, it is just the contrary that is true. They fight because they love. 
And the more a man loves, the more he fights for what he loves. And since the Irish love their country and their God, they have more to fight for. And then another peculiar characteristic of the Irish and their fighting is that they fight among themselves. Uh, a little Jewy, Jewish boy gets ahead, little A.B. Cohen, and all the good Jewish people say, that's our A.B. But let Michael O'Rafferty get ahead, and all the Irish are knocking him down to the level. Now, why is it that the Irish want to fight so much? Possibly it's because that each and every one of them realizes that he's descended of a king. And since he wore once a crown, why shouldn't he crown? <laughs> if his ancestors had a scepter, why not carry a shillelagh? But this quality of fighting is not really uh, so important. What is much more important, actually, is the humor. Now, the amount of humor that anyone gets out of the world depends upon the size of the world in which he lives. Uh, this is any individual here, my, my man, the only kind of a man I can draw. I made him with thick ears tonight. And suppose he lives in the universe where there's only time. Obviously, there's not going to be a great reservoir of humor. But suppose he goes beyond time to eternity, beyond earth to heaven, from Broadway to the streets of gold. Then he has an infinite reservoir from which to draw his humor. And that is where the Irish draw their humor. Let me give you some examples. One is how the fairies came to Ireland. You know, Ireland is peopled with fairies. No other people in the world seem to be interested in them except the Irish. And this is the origin of them. Uh, when Michael and Lucifer were having the great battle in heaven, Finally, the smoke of battle cleared away and banked over against one of heaven's blue clouds was a whole host of angels that had been doing no fighting whatever. They were under the leadership of a certain King O'Connor. Now, it's difficult to believe that they were Irish angels and not in a fight, but that is the fact. The Archangel Gabriel was the first to see them. And he went over to King O'Connor and he was furious. He said, Almighty God has laid down a law that no one shall be crowned unless he has struggled. Here instead of defending the rights of God and saying, Quis sequel Deus, who is like unto God, you have rested on your archangelic spears. If hell were not filled, I should cast you into it. And St. Michael came up, the archangel, and said, Now listen, Gabriel, don't be too hard on them. After all, they have not denied God. They merely have not fought. And Gabriel said, Well, what can I do? An archangel can't change his mind. And I believe that's, that's theologically correct. 
So St. Michael said, I tell you what we will do. We're going to make the earth soon. And we will let King O'Connor and his angels make free wishes. So King O'Connor said, I want to go to a land where there's gaming and fishing and much sporting and much laughter. Granted, said Michael. Secondly, I want to go to a land where the people are poor. Granted. And thirdly, I want to go to a land where there are labor leaders and capitalists. <laughs> Michael said, no. No, no, no. You said you wanted to go where the people were poor. And so the gates of heaven were open. And King O'Connor and his angels fell for 326 days, and they landed in Ireland, and they are the fairies of Ireland. <laughs> and then associated with them are the little leprechauns. Now a leprechaun, oh, he's about three inches high, a little shoemaker fairy. And he hides in the bushes. And if you look him straight in the eye, you make him a prisoner. And to purchase his release, he will grant you any three wishes you want. But you may not tell anybody you saw the leprechaun. This particular day, Bridget O'Toole was on her way to Mass, and she looked in the hedges, and there was a leprechaun. Well, she wanted some help for the wishes, and she went home to Michael, and she said, Michael, if you could have anything in all the world that you wanted, what would you want? And there was a tinker going by selling lanterns. He said, I wish I had one of those lanterns. And lo and behold, the lantern walked into the home and suspended itself over the fireplace. Well, Bridget was so mad that of all of the fine castles of the English lords that he might have had, that he should have chosen a silly, stupid lantern. She says, glory be to God, I wish it were hanging from the end of your nose. <laughs> and of course the lantern began to swing from the end of Michael's nose. And she had to use the third wish to get it off, and then there weren't any left. And it's that too, uh, that sense of the invisible and the eternal uh, that gives the Irish such a fine sense of poetry. Take this lovely poem of Joseph Mary Plunkett. I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice. And carven by his power, rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His cry
crown of thorns is twined with. Every thorn, his cross is every tree. I remember another occasion when I recited that poem. It was some years ago at the Eucharistic Congress in Ireland. And if there was ever a time in my life that I wanted to give a really fine oration, it was then. First of all, because it was a Eucharistic Congress. Secondly, because it was in Ireland. And thirdly, because my grandparents did not come from Bessarabia. And I was talking uh, to this audience without any notes, and I knew it was about time when I decided to quote this poem of Joseph Mary Plunkett, which I knew very well. And just before I came to it, I threw out a line that struck me then. I said, uh, Ireland has never recognized any other king but Christ and no other queen but Mary. You can imagine how the Irish like that. And then I was to go into the poem. But instead of paying attention to what I was saying in the poem, I gave myself an intellectual spanking. All the while I was reciting, I was saying to myself, now no more cracks about kings and queens. <laughs> this, this is a Eucharistic Congress. And say nothing that can be misinterpreted politically. And no matter how bright you think you are, stay away from remarks of that kind. Do you know that I whip myself so hard that when I got to the ninth line, all pathway is by his feet are worn, my mind went a complete and total blank. I couldn't think of the last three lines. One of those blanks that you have at examination period in school, finality about it, there's no use of looking for it, it isn't there. And I stopped for a minute, what seemed like a minute, and I said to the audience, I'm sorry. I've forgotten. And I saw thousands of Irish jaws drop in disappointment. And when an Irish jaw drops, it collapses. <laughs> it's, it's funny what comes to your mind in moments like that when you forget. And what flashed across my mind then was a line of Patrick Henry. Not the ones that you know. <laughs> Patrick Henry also said something else in his life. He said, he said, when you're in difficulty in an oration, throw yourself into the middle of a sentence and trust to God Almighty to get you to the other end. So I did. I said, I'm glad I forgot. Of course, I really wasn't. <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to continue until I started over again. I said, if I had ever wished to have forgotten anything, if I had ever prayed to have forgotten anything, I should have prayed to have forgotten these lines of Joseph Mary Plunkett. I think there's beautiful symbolism in the forgetfulness. And that symbolism is that standing on the anvil of Ireland's soil, one should be able to hammer and forge out the sparks of his own poetry and not be dependent even upon a magnanimous soul like Joseph Mary Plunkett. When I finished the, the oration, do you know what the chairman said to me? 
He said, Father Sheen, he says, that was a wonderful trick of oratory. Wonderful pretending that you forgot. <laughs> and that brings us to Blarney. You've been waiting for that. Now, I should make a distinction. The distinction is between Blarney and Baloney. <laughs> There's a world of difference between the two. Blarney is the varnished truth. Baloney is the unvarnished lie. Blarney is flattery laid on so thin you love it. Blarney is flattery laid on so thick you hate it. For example, to tell a woman who's 40 you look like 16, that's baloney. The Blarney way of saying it is Tell me how old you are. I should like to know at what age women are most beautiful. <laughs> Last St. Patrick's Day, I saw an Irishman get up in the subway and give a seat to a lady, and she said, you're a jewel. And he said, lady, I'm a jeweler. I set jewels. And Blarney is always associated with imagination and also with exaggeration, which seems a peculiar quality, too, of the Irish. Those of you who have ever been down to Killarney, you probably met one of the boatmen down there. I remember I asked him once, I said, is Killarney deep? Deep, he said. He said, I had a nephew that dove in there six months ago. We got a postcard from him in Australia last week. He went to winter underwear. <laughs> and I remember once being taken for a ride around the Killarney district by a Jarvie driver, and I arranged for a price before we started, and I said at the end, how much do I owe you? They never tell you. They never give you a direct answer. He said, oh, he said, I've got a wife and ten children. So I gave him the bargain price, and what I thought was really a very good tip. You know what he did? He took off his coat. He threw it over the horse's head. He says, Father, I'd be ashamed let the horse he had given me this. I once had a resort to Blarney. I went to a concert one night some years ago at Carnegie Hall. It was a dual concert given by John McCormick and Grace Moore. And on the way in, I met Lily McCormick, Mrs. John McCormick. 
And she said, where are you seated? And I sat up in the balcony. She said, well, come down and sit in my box. So I went down and sat in the box. John came out, sang a few songs, looked up to Lily, his wife, spotted me, and he said, oh, he said, I see we have Father Sheen in the audience. Let's have him come down and say a few words to you tonight. Well, I had no more business being on the stage of Carnegie Hall at a musical concert than I had taken Phil Rizzuto's place in the Yankee infield. <laughs> so I went down. What would you say on such an occasion? Well, I told the life story of John McCormick. You know, he was born in Athlone, and this is the way I told it. That some angels and fairies assisted God in the making of the babe of Athlone. And one of the angels went to the Shannon and stole from out it its lilt. And the fairies went down to Killarney, where on one side of the road the sun shines, and on the other side it rains, like a child that smiles through its tears and makes human rainbows. And they carried the ray of sunshine and the tear back to Athlone, and on the way the ray of sunshine was converted into a smile and the drop of rain into a tear. And the lilt and the smile and the tear were given to the babe of Athlone. And the angel who stood nearby said, Oh, if he only had a voice to articulate this lilt and this smile and this tear, I shall go to heaven and ask God for a voice. And God said, over there in that corner of heaven is a whole host of harps that have not been used since the day that Michael flashed his archangelic spears. Take from out one of those golden harps three golden cords and string the throat of the babe of Athlone. And when the throat of the babe of Athlone had been strung with the golden cords from the golden harp of God, he cried. The angel said, Oh, how he will sing when he grows. But the fairy said, No man ever sings without an inspiration for a song. The angel said, well, what kind of inspiration do we want? Where can we find it? Suppose I search for a flower. And the fairies and the angels went down the east coast of west of Ireland and up the west. And finally they came to Dublin, where they found a beautiful lily. And he's been singing to her ever since. Therefore, these good people who have brought Blarney and humor into the world have enriched us all. And I believe that on the last day, 
when the good Lord comes in the clouds of heaven to judge the living of the dead, that he will not show himself to all peoples in just exactly the same way. I believe that every people will see him according to their own national and natural characteristics. I wonder when he comes if he will not seem to the Germans who love pomp and circumstance as the great king. And I wonder when he comes if he will not show himself to the Spaniards who love the beauty of religion with his face shining as the sun and his garments white as snow. And he will come to the people of India who love mortification showing scars and hands and feet and sides but to the Irish he will show something he showed to no other people he will show them his gratitude for their humor. He will show them his smile. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com you will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, one 357 4336 and on the web www.bishopsheen.com and on behalf of Bishop Sheen God love you you are listening to Radio Maria Canada we now continue with the program your life is worth living hosted by Al Smith Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. It is great to be here with you and to be sharing these words of wisdom from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. He shared with us the psychology of the Irish, and uh, I think I'm, I'm more enlightened today by that talk. And now, of course, I want to uh, practice my faith and learn it well. Uh, Bishop Sheen is going to be talking about the sacrament of the sick. We're on lesson number 34 of the 50-part series that Bishop Sheen created many years ago for us. And so let us uh, sit back and relax now and enjoy this great reflection on the sacrament of the sick from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Peace be to you. 
Shakespeare speaks of the ills the flesh is heir to. It is of those ills and sicknesses that we speak in the sacrament of extreme unction. The sacrament could also be called the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. First of all, as regards sickness itself, it does many things to us, not only physically, but also psychologically. First of all, it cuts us off from many occasions of sin. The will to sin is certainly weakened by physical infirmity. Then to sickness also manifests the uniqueness of our personality. We begin to realize that I am I. Self is confronted with self. The soul sees itself as it really is. Sickness breaks the spell that pleasure is everything, that we ought to go on building bigger and bigger barns, and that life is worthless unless there is a thrill in it. It enables us also to readjust our sense of values. We begin to understand the words of our Lord. What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his immortal soul? Then too it can end in death. There is a world of difference between the way the pagan faces death and the way the Christian does. The pagan fears the loss of the body. Christian fears the loss of the soul. To the Christian, the physical life and the world are not everything. This world is only a scaffolding to him. It is a scaffolding up through its soul's climb to the kingdom of heaven. And when the last soul shall have climbed up through it, then it shall be torn down and burnt with fervent fire, not because it is base, but simply because it has done its work. And there's another difference between the pagan and the Christian as regards death. The Christian never feels that his whole being is threatened by death. The pagan does. The pagan is always moving forward toward death. Moving forward toward it. Like as if he were walking toward an abyss. The Christian is walking backwards. From death. Well, how does he walk backwards? Because he starts with that fact. Someday I'm going to die. Someday I must render an account of my stewardship. Knowing that I will die, I now prepare my life so that it may enter the kingdom of heaven. The worst thing, therefore, that can happen to a Christian is not death. The greatest tragedy is not to have loved enough 
There's no need of laboring these points. Sickness is very obvious, too obvious indeed. Our Lord was very much concerned about it. Let us now study the background of the sacrament that he instituted. The sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Many of the prophecies that were told about our blessed Lord revealed and heralded him as the healer of the sick. In countless places in the New Testament, we read such phrases as these. I am quoting. Jesus went about teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and curing every kind of disease and infirmity. Then again we read in Luke, when our blessed Lord was at Genezareth, the scripture states, and they began bringing the sick to him, beds and all, wherever they heard he was, and they begged him to let them touch even the hem of his cloak. And all that touched him recovered. Like the Syrophoenician woman, remember? She said, if I but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be healed. The gospel does not tell us all the miracles of healing, but St. John's ends up his gospel by saying that if he had written down all of the miracles that our blessed Lord had worked, the world would not be large enough to contain the books thereof. The point is, therefore, our blessed Lord, as the Son of God made man, had the power to heal the sick. Now we come to the second point. He communicated that power to the apostles. After the resurrection, our blessed Lord sent his apostles into the world... And here I am quoting the Gospel of Mark, where our blessed Lord said to his apostles, Lay hands upon the sick and make them recover. And again in the Gospel of Luke we read concerning the apostles, and this is a quotation, they work cures everywhere. How did our Lord communicate this power? How did he tell the apostles to cure? He told them to do so by using oil because the gospel tells us and they anointed with oil many sick people and healed them. Our blessed Lord instituted the sacrament of the healing of the sick, or what is called extreme unction, passed it on to his church. And we find that the early church was using the sacrament just as we use it now. St. James, one of the apostles, writing in his epistle, speaks of this sacrament that had been instituted by our Lord. And he says, Is one of you sick? 
Let him send for the priests of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the Lord's name. Prayer offered in faith will restore the sick man, and the Lord will give him relief. If he is guilty of sins, they will be pardoned. That is the earliest description that we have of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Now notice that our blessed Lord told his apostles to use oil. Just as our Lord in other sacraments used bread and water, so in this he uses oil because naturally oil was used to strengthen the body. Athletes very often would rub their bodies with oil. And our Lord, therefore, used it as the matter of the sacrament. Where does this oil come from? It is blessed by the bishop on Holy Thursday. There are three kinds of oils that are blessed on that day. Now, this oil for the sacrament, this particular sacrament, is distributed to various parishes. During the year, the priests anoint the sick with that oil. When the bishop blesses and consecrates these oils, he says this particular prayer over the oil that is used in this sacrament. With this heavenly anointing, let none be medicined, but that he shall find protection within and without Gone all pain and sickness. Gone every ailment of soul and body. Should there not be a sacrament for the sick? Just as there is for the wounded? There's a world of difference between being wounded and being sick. Between being cut by a knife and having smallpox. Our blessed Lord has instituted a sacrament for our spiritual wounds, namely the sacrament of penance. So he has a sacrament for the sickness of the body, the body that is united to the soul, to incidentally. And the beauty of this sacrament is that though the grace is communicated to the soul, it influences the body in a very special way. Not in the way in which the divine divinity of our blessed Lord influenced the humanity that he took from his blessed mother. No. But in some mysterious way, the results of the passion of our blessed Lord are poured through the soul into the body. Because you cannot think of any part of the body that has not been a vehicle of sin. This particular sacrament now wants to do away with all of the traces of that sin and thus in some way restore the body again to health if it be God's will. You cannot think of a single sin that did not come through the body. Not a one. Envy. That certainly came through the eyes. For example, you saw how much better the Joneses were doing. 
and you had to keep up with the Joneses. Pride. Your ear might have been involved. Someone told you that you were very smart, and very beautiful. Drunkenness, adultery, robbery, blasphemy, all in some way involve the body that is the object of the sacrament. Even your feet you walked into an occasion of sin. Even your nose. Your nose could have contributed to vanity. You may have smelled good cooking. And ate too much. And too considerable vanity could be involved in the use of perfume. Now when a sin gets into the soul through the body... It always leaves a trace, very much like certain diseases. They leave little remembrances behind, not the kind of remembrances that we would like to have. Viruses have tails. Now we're not speaking scientifically. But they do leave vestiges of themselves. That is why certain diseases are not contracted again. And that is why... Also, some diseases leave a very important trace and sometimes embarrassing trace, like smallpox. So does sin. Sin comes into the soul through the body, and after a while the body becomes like a chimney in which there has been fire, and smoke emitted from the hearth, the chimney becomes full of soot. Ships going through the ocean contract many barnacles. Sewers become clogged. You just cannot have sins pouring through the eyes and the ears and the nose and the feet and so forth without these senses becoming clogged, sooty, dirty, barnacled. The church now purifies the avenues of sin, the eyes and the ears, the nose, the hands and the lips and the feet. And the purification takes place by the anointing with oil and the words of the priest. Now this is what the priest says when he anoints your eyes. By this holy anointing and his most loving mercy, may the Lord forgive you whatever wrong you have done by the use of your sight. Amen. And the priest anoints your ears. He says, by this holy anointing and his most loving mercy, May the Lord forgive you whatever wrong you have done by the use of your hearing. Amen. And the priest anoints the nose. By this holy anointing and his most loving mercy, may the Lord forgive you whatever wrong you have done by the use of the sense of smell. Amen. And your hands. By this holy anointing and his most loving mercy, may the Lord forgive you whatever wrong you have done by the use of your sense of touch. Amen. 
When the sacrament of extreme unction or the anointing of the sick is given to a priest, he is always anointed on the back of his hands. The laity are always anointed on the palm of their hands. The reason why the priest is anointed on the back of his hand is because the palm of his hand was anointed when he was ordained a priest. Continuing the sacrament, come to the lips. By this holy anointing and his most loving mercy, may the Lord forgive you whatever wrong you have done by the use of your sense of taste and the power of speech. Amen. Then he anoints your feet. By this holy anointing and his most loving mercy, May the Lord forgive you whatever wrong you have done by the use of your power of walking. Amen. Those are the words of the sacrament. Not all the words. But the words that are used in the actual anointing. Now some remarks about it. First, this sacrament is given only in serious illness. The one who receives it must be in some danger of death through sickness. It need not be the certitude of death, no. But at any rate, there must be some danger. That is why the sacrament of the anointing of the sick may not be given to soldiers that are going into battle. They are in danger of death, but not from sickness. If they are wounded, then indeed they could be anointed. Secondly, this sacrament should not be delayed until the patient is unconscious and can no longer join in the prayers should be given while he can lift up his soul to the healing power of Christ who is refreshing his senses and his soul and his sins. Thirdly, the sacrament does not mean that the person is going to die. There are many who believe that just as soon as a priest is called to administer this particular sacrament, it means the patient is beyond hope. No, the Council of Trent refused to consider the sacrament of expiation only as a sacrament for the dying. The next point, and this is very important. In the administration of this sacrament, there is no mention of death. None whatever. It is not necessarily the sacrament of the dying. It is the sacrament of the sick. Here is the prayer that the priest recites after he has anointed the hands and feet and other members of the body. Now listen to this prayer. Note carefully 
that the word death is not used. Note also that the burden of the prayer is the restoration of the sick person. Cure, we beseech thee, O our Redeemer, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, the ailments of this sick man, or woman as the case may be, heal his wounds and forgive his sins. Deliver him from all miseries of body and mind. And mercifully restore him to perfect health, inwardly and outwardly. That having recovered by an act of kindness, he may be able to take up his former duties. Thou who with the Father and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth God, world without end. Amen. See from that prayer that though the sacrament is given at a critical time, it is more concerned with sickness than with death. That is the reason why the sacrament would just as well and possibly even better be called the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Because when we receive it, grace, of course, is always received with the soul. But as we said before, we are a unit, a composite of body and soul. And here this sacrament has a very special repercussion upon the body. To use a very modern word, we might call it the psychosomatic sacrament. The sacrament of body and soul. It looks to the healing of the body, not clinically, not just as a body, because the church regards the body very differently than medicine. To the church, the body is not just an organism, but it is also the temple of God, the residence of divine life. That's why St. Paul says the body is for the Lord. Therefore, this sacrament looks to the body and seeks to give it relief in order that it will not impede the soul in its love of God. And our failure to see this is a failure to see the beauty of the sacrament. I wonder if we really bring to it all the faith that we should have. Did not St. James speak of the great faith that was demanded when the sacrament is received? Here it is the divine physician who comes to us and we should look less to our disease than we look to him.
course, the sickness does not preclude the possibility of death, because we are all under the penalty of death. If we are in danger of death, then we receive the sacrament of the dying, which is viaticum. The viaticum is the Eucharist that is given to the dying. Viaticum means on the way you take the Lord with you. If it be God's will that death be not postponed, then we see in the sacrament because our senses have been cleansed. First in incorporation to the death of Christ. We were baptized in his death. The Eucharist reminded us of its death. And now we are incorporated in a very special way We say with our Lord on the cross, it is finished. Our death is united to his. We are also united to his resurrection. This sacrament prefigures the anointing of future glory. It in some way applies the resurrection of the body in anticipation ties it to our thoughts, to our desire. And we can go before God with all of the avenues of our body cleansed. As I once heard an old woman say, who was dying of cancer of the face, she said, you know, I hate to go before the Lord looking like this. But how beautiful it is to have all the senses cleansed as we go before the Lord. This is a beautiful sacrament. Throws out a bridge between earth and heaven. And over it we walk in our human weakness. The sadness of our suffering is wedded to the yearning for God. Joy and sadness meet. And if you would know what joy this sacrament gives, you would only have to go with us priests into the sick room and see us as we minister to the dying. Pray that you may never die without the sacrament. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you once again for joining me for another hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. It has been a great time to learn our faith together and to learn about the sacrament of the sick uh, and those recommendations that no one ever die without the sacrament. And uh, we have to think about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, and uh, we need to prepare well. And so it was a nice, gentle reminder from Venerable Sheen to help us with that. And so I'd ask you to spread the word, of course, of Bishop Sheen here on Radio Maria Canada. And I'd invite you to bring a friend next week. And so until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Here on Radio Maria Canada.